Welcome to another episode of Ethnic Discourses. I am your host, Malik Abdul Khalik. Creating a space for oneself at a table at which one hasn't been invited but belongs may seem like a daunting task. Finding one's voice to articulate the narrative seldom heard at a table whereat the occupants don't always look like or sound like a cross-section of the demographic may even compound a problem. Invite the word intersectionality in as a means to describe and define the overlap and juncture that occurs when one represents seemingly disparate slivers of social being, whether gender, religion, ethnicity, race, class, etc., and the perpendicular crash of discrimination, prejudice, and ostracization that could occur when they meet is profound. True leaders have to develop ways to circumvent those flaming hoops. I have the pleasure and honor of interviewing someone who is meeting that challenge head-on by navigating the streams of academia and society to be a human rights lawyer to champion the cause of equal rights for all. I welcome Kalima Mutaki to join us on this episode. Assalamualaikum, Kalima Mutaki. How are you doing? Waalaikum assalam. I'm good. Alhamdulillah. I'm just enjoying my Sunday. Alhamdulillah. Thank you very much for being a guest on my podcast, Ethnic Discourses. It's such a pleasure and an honor to have you. Of course, the honor is all mine. Oh, thank you very much. In the run-up, you know, in the run-up in a particular piece, I was giving a little information about the challenges, you know, as seen through the lens of, of an upcoming and aspiring human rights human rights lawyer. You're you're going to be attending law school and things of that sort. So, mm-hmm. why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you aspire to number one, focus in on human rights, mm. you know, and some of the challenges, some of the challenges you've experienced going through those hoops. Mm. Okay. So my name is Kalima. Um, I am a recent graduate from UC Davis. I received a bachelor's degree in international relations with an emphasis on peace and security. I come from a very diverse background. Um, I was born in the Bay Area, East Oakland, raised in Sacramento. Um, I have roots all over the world. I'm half black, both African-American and Afro-Latino, as well as Pakistani and Mexican. So I've witnessed diversity um, firsthand. And I've seen um, both the benefits and the challenges to that. And I've seen the way in which commonalities across groups can really offer strength, especially when fighting for justice. And so witnessing that growing up, um, it really just motivated me. You know, I saw so many inequalities and struggles um, occurring across all my people. Um, And I knew that, you know, there needed to be change. And I saw the strength Mm -hmm. that we all possess when we come together um, across barriers of race, gender, religion. Um, And so that kind of motivated me and focused my emphasis on international relations um, kind of, you know, studying aspects of diplomacy and that sort. Um, and then human rights came into the picture when um, I became very involved in activism within the Sacramento scene following the murder of Stefan Clark. Um, and I think that I really, I saw the lack of justice that was handled at the, you know, local level, um, at the state level. And I figured that, you know, I think that issues of this sort, police brutality and state violence, need to be fought on a wider scale. Um, 
And I think that they need to be called out for what they are, which are human rights abuses. You know, the U.S. has no problem calling out other third world countries for human rights abuses um, when their police are doing the same thing as um, police here. So really just looking at the bigger picture um, and just being motivated to make a difference. Kalima, that is that is such a profound answer that you provided. And you when you connected everything globally with respect to the actions that are taking place locally, um, it reminds me, and you were talking for Latina um, <clears throat> ancestry, mm-hmm. uh, Afro Panamanian ancestry. It reminds me when I was in Panama three years ago, and you were talking about how the United States wants to uh, act as a global policeman. Mm-hmm. Walking through walking through the streets of Panama, one is rudely reminded of the infringement of sorts, you know, because a lot of the streets are still in the form of cobblestone that right. was bombed, you know, there were, there were, there were vestiges of the bombing. So that is a very profound, you know, answer that you gave. And thank you very much. Now I have a, I have a more in, in depth question and we're going to, we're going to keep things light for the folk here, but you know, <laughs> Hey, this is, ethnic, this is ethnic discourses. Right. And the reason why, the reason why I developed this particular platform is because some of the narratives that uh, that associate that are associated with individuals who look like you and I, you know, mm-hmm. and don't fit this, don't fit this particular singletary standard, you know, of what quote unquote American is supposed to be like, you know, hey, you know, we're going to wake them up. So I have a question mm. for you. All right. You were talking about activism. So, you know, oftentimes we we hear that the disbelief um, to the challenge, you know, of the notion that one can be an activist and a high caliber student, you know, or be an activist and a high caliber athlete, mm. such as uh, what's going on, you know, right now with respect to um, an individual by the name of Naomi Osaka. Mm-hmm. She just won the U.S. Open and she wore several masks, you know, d- bearing the names of some black folk, prominent, you know, black, black folk here who have been the uh, victims of police brutality, you know, or systemic racial injustice, you know, and, and racism. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you consider it difficult to be an activist and a aspiring human rights lawyer or or what is your position on that mm. that that compartmentalization that people try to you know people want to do you know i think that it can be difficult insofar as you know managing time and energy and that sort of thing but when it comes down to it i don't see those two things as separate because i feel mm-hmm. as though my activism and my beliefs in equality and pursuit of justice are what is fueling my academic journey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that it just comes down to when you see people, like, for example, you gave the example of Naomi Osaka, you can tell when a person is motivated and their purpose is to make a change. And they embed that purpose into anything and everything that they do, be it on a tennis court, be it in the courtroom. Um, so when you're motivated by that higher purpose, And, you know, going in, I mean, I've been involved in activism since I was a young girl before I even entered my journey of academia. And so I knew that, you know, the journey was not going to be pretty and it was not going to be easy. And I think that I've never really even considered pursuing, you know, a degree or pursuing a career or anything of that sort without having that higher purpose embedded into what I'm doing and without having my activism um alongside that and so you know it can be it can definitely be difficult you know when you see your peers that are just able to focus on their homework and not you know because you'll be in the classroom alongside someone who's you know just learning about for example in a political science class learning about the um 
decolonial decolonization theory um and for them it's just writing down a definition for you you're relating that back to your ancestry you're relating that back to things that are happening in your neighborhood right now in the united states of america um and so just being able to relate everything and just having that constant reminder um it's just i mean it's difficult but it just always reminds me of my purpose and you know as a muslim i feel as though the prophet muhammad peace be upon him he he made it so that you know activism or you know back then that wasn't even the word for it um but activism social justice it was embedded into every aspect of a muslim's life and so i take that and i try to do the same and follow in his footsteps and that is and that is so true because when you when you shared that what automatically rushes to my mind is one of the hadiths attributed to him um, where we're in Prophet Muhammad wasallam, and peace, be, peace and blessings be upon him, where he says, you know, look, if one sees a wrong unfolding before one in society, one has one of three choices, you know, to stop that. Either A, you can try to stop it, you know, you can try to stop it with your hands. Mm-hmm. Either B, you can try to stop, you can try to stop it with your tongue, you know, or talk about it. Or mm-hmm. C, you can hate it in your heart. That's the least of faith, but still right. that, that intention should that intention should be there. And it's very significant with respect to what you were sharing about. And I want to take you to the classroom where you were talking about how it, how an individual may be just learning about decolonization theory, mm-hmm. and an individual and an individual who has had to deal with decolonization theory all along. So I have a question, okay? Mm-hmm. And this is and this is this differentiates some of the. And you were talking about Stefan Clark, so I'll get into that a little, early, a little later. But here's a question for you. So please, if you can, tell me about the first time when you had to first think about ethnicity, race, or gender. Mm. Because sometimes that is intruded upon one's uh, self-consciousness, you know, in such, a, in such an early and rude way. Right. You know, growing up, because I was just mixed with so many different bloodlines, um, I didn't really, you know, you would think that you would think about it a lot, but I didn't, I didn't even really have an understanding of what race was. I just knew that, you know, I was surrounded by all these beautiful people with all this beautiful food and all these beautiful stories. And I thought that everyone kind of shared that same experience. Um, And I was homeschooled up until the second grade. So when I entered public education in third grade, um, I remember we were taking um, it was some sort of or might have been actually later on, maybe in the fifth grade. But it was a sort of standardized testing. And part of the front page, you were to mark your race or ethnicity. Um, Mm -hmm. and I remember just staring at it because it said mark one box and I, you know, I was like, well, first of all, I don't even, you know, I'm a mixture of so many different boxes on here. Um, and second of all, you know, it was like, what am I supposed to mark other? Cause I'm not another. Yes. Um, and then I was noticing that, you know, some of my bloodlines weren't even on the page to begin with. Um, so that kind of made me realize that I was navigating the world in a different way because, you know, I looked over to my peers sitting at the table um, and I was like, well, what are you putting? Um, And, you know, I still had this idea that, you know, everybody was living in a diverse, in a world that was as diverse as mine. And they were like, well, I'm just, I'm just marking Mexican. Like that, like, that's what I am. I'm just marking Mexican. Um, And I was like, oh, okay. Um, And I'm pretty sure that, Um, Because for most of my childhood, up until um, middle school, because I was raised with my father's side of the family and I was very heavily embedded in 
black culture and you know grew up on black literature um you know was raised in a black muslim um lens and so i'm pretty sure that i probably marked black or african-american and you know it's funny looking back on it because you know i am you know obviously racially ambiguous and a lot of folks wouldn't necessarily assume that but that was just what was at the forefront of my mind um Mm -hmm. And and then I remember, you know, maybe like a year or two later walking in the mall with my family and with my father's side of the family um, and just having people stare at me as though, you know, I didn't belong. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that those were probably just my first understandings that, you know, race, what race was and that um, it could potentially confuse other people. Yes. Yes. Now, let's let's. Thank you very much for that answer. Now, now let's talk about something that where that racial ambiguity, you know, or ethnic ambiguity Mm -hmm. um, runs parallel, runs parallel with the global non-recognition or supposedly non-recognition of race and ethnicity that's supposed to be bound up in the the religion of Islam. Mm. You were, you were a very significant uh, founder of an organization on the campus of University of California Davis that sought to mm-hmm. confront that challenge, wherein a lot of times, and I've and I've experienced this as a, you know, as a scholar being invited, being invited many times into Muslim Student Association organizations on on the campuses and speaking directly to the otherization or the relegation of the African narrative. Mm-hmm. To, to to the margins or to the footnotes. So, can you please share with me what 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 inspired you to create Faces of African Muslims? You know, on University of California Davis campus. Mm. So, um, I was actually brought in by um, one of the sisters who it was her idea to you know really bring this to Davis. She saw a need for it, and I had been contemplating. I was like, you know, I had you know thought you know there's a need for it because the thing is that you know, and Muslim student associations have their pros and cons. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, just because of the way that demographics lay out in California or Davis, um, they're heavily, they have a heavy majority of Arab and South Asian participation. And not that that's bad. However, there are certain consequences that arise from that when you have, you know, um, you know, just aspects of a culture that may not be that aligned with Islam, such as racism. Um, And so I would go to these MSA events and it wouldn't necessarily be over racism or anything like that, but it was just little things like, you know, feeling ostracized or not really having anybody come up and try to, you know, um, get to know me or anything of that sort. Or when they did, it was like, well, where are you from? Where are you from? Um, And then as soon Mm -hmm. as they hear black and Latino, it's like, oh, um, you know, kind of like eyes down. So it was just, you know, where can where can I find that space where I can be fully Muslim and fully black and fully Latino? Um, Because I just don't feel like there was I just didn't feel like there was a space for that. So the Mm -hmm. sister brought me in um, and I had the honor and the privilege of serving as the publicist for this organization. Um, And one of the main one of our main goals was to. um, We weren't so much focused on having a presence in you know these other islamic spaces our focus was on creating our own space um yes and i personally felt the need to um sit on the executive board because i was the only um african-american muslim 
most of the sisters were, um, you know, Somali or Sudanese, um, um, things of that sort. And I felt that there definitely needed to be, um, because the way that the population is laid out at UC Davis, there's a lot of like um, African Muslim presence from, you know, yes. all over, all over the continent, all over the diaspora, yes. Nigeria, um, Sierra Leone. And there are also, you know, quite a few African-American Muslims. Um, however, there's, that's just the way that the dynamics is laid out. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that, you know, that that sector of the Black Muslim population was being represented because I've also dealt with, you know, and this is very unfortunate, I've dealt with and I've witnessed racism and anti-Blackness from, you know, African uh, Muslims from the continent um, in a certain, you know, just a certain perspective that individuals may have regarding African-American Muslims. Um, and, you know, that all goes, you know, it's, it's in the narrative of immigration and coming to the to coming here and, you know, um, white supremacist ideals and all that sort. I'm not to put blame on, you know, any one sector of people or anything of that sort. Um, but I've witnessed that and I've witnessed that othering when, you know, you're surrounded by other black folks, other black Muslims, but like, you know, they're all speaking Arabic um, and they're not yes. including you in the conversation or they're giving you looks of that sort. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that, you know, my people and that sector of the black Muslim population was being represented. And that's what really fueled me um, in continuing. And we put on amazing events and I'm so that was probably one of the pinnacles of my um, undergrad experience. I'm so fortunate to have been able to be involved with them. I remember, and, and that was and that was a very beneficial experience of mine also to be invited up there because mm-hmm. as you were sharing, and and one of the unfortunalities, you know, that exists respecting uh, the dis- the disparagement, and I won't say where the where the origin is from, you know, whatever ethnic group or whatever nationality is is ill, Ill contributing to the ill depiction of of African Americans. Mm-hmm. However, what I found what I found as both an Islamic scholar as as well as an ethnic studies scholar is sometimes that is conspicuously absent a, a, a cursory understanding or even a profound understanding of the African-American experience. Mm-hmm. And when I say African-American experience, I mean transcending that 500-year curtain, you know, right. as, um, as a scholar shared with us, you know, before. And this is, and this is sometimes could be an indictment, you know, of uh, K-12, the K-12 curricular experience here in the United States, wherein uh, the African-American experience starts as slavery. Mm-hmm. And- yeah. And if it and it doesn't transcend the Atlantic Ocean because if it did, this this is this is where Muslims and African American right. Muslims would get their get their pump up because by the time that Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, well you had three uh, significant strong Islamic empires on the west coast of Africa: yeah. the Malian Empire, the Songhe Empire, and and the Ghanaian Empire that already had reached their apex and were on the wane you know so we didn't come here empty-handed mm-hmm. many of us as african muslims were forced to divest you know through the, through the process of white supremacy so supported by slavery we were forced to divest ourselves of those um accoutrements if you will thank you know and thank you very much you know for for touching on that and you know kalima that's one of the things that's always um that's always and i have always smiled about how much of an activist, activist you've been, you know, okay. and how much you, you, you've been involved, you know, and not only your own centering, you know, but also ensuring that that centering is also uh, afforded to other people. Hmm. You had talked about uh, Stefan Clark. Um, he was another one of the victims, you know, of police brutality. You know, he was shot 
um, numerous times in mm -hmm. 2000, uh, 2018, you know, and his life was, life was killed. And I remember uh, at his funeral, at his janazah, and I say janazah because that is a lot of people were shocked to find out that he was a Muslim. Right. Um, so how did that, you know, how did the Black Lives Matter movement that was really fueled, you know, but not only by George Floyd, but also it really kicked off here in Sacramento, mm -hmm. you know, with that Stefan Clark. So how is your work, ha has your work been directly involved in Black Lives Matter? Have you been asked to work as an auxiliary in Black Lives Matter, you know, or how has that provided that much more oomph, you know, to yeah. your wanting to be a human rights lawyer? I mean, this is not something that's new. You and I know it both. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And so when the incident took place in which Stefan Clark was murdered by um, SAC PD, it was, it was an awakening of sorts because, you know, it was nationally recognized and a lot of tension and emphasis was placed on Sacramento. But at the same time, it's like you can list off three other names of black men who have been murdered by SAC PD just the year before. Um, yes. So it was nothing new, but I think that it aligned in a time of my life in which I was really, you know, coming to terms with my own person and defining my activism for myself and gaining independence. I had just transferred from Consumer River College to UC Davis. So I was living on my own. Um, and because it aligned at such a pinnacle time in which I was forming my own person um, and defining, you know, the next pathways of my life, it really had an impact on me. And I just remember, like, I would, I was living in Davis, but I would, you know, drive right after class down to protest. And I was very heavily involved with all the protests that were going on. Um, and I think that although, you know, I have, I've been going to protest since I was a little girl, my parents would literally, you know, roll me out in a stroller uh, when I was a baby. So it's not anything new, but I've always kind of gone with, um, you know, a parent or a family member. And so this was the first time that I was really participating on my own um, with, you know, peers and that sort of thing with a community, of course, um, but on my own. And just to see, because, you know, when you go with parents and when you go with, you know, um, guardians and that sort, they're still trying to shield you from some of the ugliness uh, because yes. you're young, you're, you're a child. They, they still want to preserve some aspect of your innocence. Um, and I think that when those protests in particular, I was just able to see the visceral evil of the police state here in Sacramento. Um, I was able to, you know, be face to face with police officers and see the hatred in their eyes. Um, you know, I witnessed them brutalize bodies right in front of me. And so it just became, I don't want to say so much more real because I've known that this was mm -hmm. real. I've witnessed it. But there's, it becomes a different, it manifests into a different type of real when you are inches away from it happening. Um, when it's happening, you know, to, when you're having to run away from police officers, when it's happening to you. And so I think that that really just implemented a sense of urgency. Um, because, you know, going, you know, starting off college, you know, I knew that what my plan was, um, but I didn't have, I still wanted to, you know, I still thought, you know, I have time. I have time to figure it out. I don't know. I'm not a hundred percent sure that this is the track that I want to take. You know, I might want to, I might want to do journalism or something of that sort. 
Um, and it yeah. really just cemented that sense of urgency and made me realize one, I, I, I had confirmation from God. Um, I feel mm-hmm. that I was on the right track and that I needed to give my all and my everything into this pursuit of becoming um, an attorney. Um, because it was also through that sense that I saw the power of um, the law and I saw how individuals can either use the law um, against my people or for my people. Um, and I knew that I needed to be on the side of history um, using the law um, for the pursuit of justice, for the pursuit of equity. So, yeah, it really just solidified a sense of urgency Um it, I think that, you know, there are benefits to anger and it definitely made me angry. Um, and through that anger, I just grew more motivated, more focused on my studies. Um, and I think that it also allowed for an outlet because sometimes when you're just bombarded by all of this death, you don't know what to do and you don't know how to handle those emotions. And for yes. me, participating in those protests and forming a sense of community was very therapeutic and it allowed for an outlet for me to come to terms with my emotions and express those emotions. So, you know, I'm just very grateful that it was that I was able to fully experience um, that moment as a young adult and as a person entering their academic career um, and sort of transforming into the person that I want to be in the future. Thank, thank you. You know, thank you very much for touching on a lot of the elements, you know, that constitute one's being, particularly yours, you know, as you're catapulted into this trajectory of sorts, what your profession is going to be, um, possibly human rights lawyer mixed with journalism. Um, you like to write a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You're driven by, po- you're driven by poetry. You had, you had alluded to earlier um, the, the global nexus point of your being you know how your ancestry is is from different different places um i know that you've recently traveled to to spain you know other mm-hmm. uh, you know otherwise as muslims you know refer to as al-andalusia not everybody's given that opportunity yeah give us a, give, give, give us a short cursory you know uh overview of, of what that experience was like absolutely and i do if you don't mind um i i do want to touch back on one more point um, in the previous question. So something else that um, that experience really made me aware of was that academia does not offer all the solutions um, yes. and that it is not necessarily focused on the liberation of um, underserved peoples. Um, and I really saw that in response when I when I saw the university's response to um, Stefan Clark's murder and then subsequently the year after um, the acquittal of the officers that murdered him. And that really opened my eyes to, you know, realize that academia is not the answer. It is a means of, you know, of um, obtaining certain degrees and that sort of thing that I may need um, in order to pursue this goal that I have. But it's not the end all be all. Um, And, you know, I really saw a lack in just the awareness of the student population, um, the professors, the administration. Um, And I was able to, you know, with other peers, we um, formed a week of action to try to like wake people up um, and bring awareness to the issue. I had the opportunity to meet with the chancellor of UC Davis, Gary May, um, and have conversations with him. Um, But it really just opened my eyes 
I think that, you know, for a lot of people, even people who may come from underserved backgrounds, we enter these high ranking universities and we just become so fixated on um, climbing up that academia ladder um, and obtaining all these accolades um, and really just, you know, thinking that theory and all these sort of things are the end all be all. And I'm, I'm the reason why I'm glad that the two points, um, points in history collided in the sense of like all this activism occurring in Sacramento and me entering university, because I realized that a necessary component of my path will always be on the ground with the people. Um, Mm -hmm. And that just as much as I have to learn from these academia and um, these structures, I have to learn from activists on the ground. Um, So it really just, I'm glad that that happened because I think that had that not occurred at the same time, I might've been swept into that idea of, just focusing on academia um, and getting all my information from the university and not questioning what was provided to me. Um, So I was very fortunate in that sense as well. Yeah. Thank you very much. And before we go on to Spain, this is, see, this is, and and I'm glad that you identified that because sometimes people do get embedded and mired into the whole notion of academia being the uh, purveyor of all answers. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the equation, sometimes, my colleagues, you know, as scholars sometimes get embedded within that very same notion, you know, and they are usually referred to as ivory tower scholars, which yeah. I'm, I'm the complete opposite of because the purpose, you know, the purpose of ethnic discourses was to bring the ethnic studies classroom to, in a non-elitist fashion, yeah. to the airwaves, you know, so we can discuss many of these uh, positive problems and negative problems, you know, that are associated with individuals who have been otherized, who have been, mm-hmm. uh, re- who narratives have been relegated to the margins, you know, or to the footnotes. And unfortunately, when we start off uh, at K with maybe a hundred black and brown folk, we know that, you know, through the process of obstacles, things of that sort, not all 100 make it to the university if that is their effort, mm-hmm. you know, and if they do, it's probably about out of that, probably about 45 or, or 50, you know, so, right. and, and probably lower 35%. So thank you very much for bringing that, you know, to the attention with respect to that notion of academia, you know, academia not being the entire solvent of the problem. I consider mm-hmm. myself as a, as, as an, as a educator, a, 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 Fred, a Fredarian um, educator, mm-hmm. meaning that, you know, so, sometimes in academia, there could be the, the overemphasis on the banking methodology as Paulo Freire had identified where teachers or scholars want students just to memorize facts absent mm-hmm. the uh, absent the application of said facts to solving particular problems right there before them you know so thank you very much Kalima now let's hopscotch into <laughs> into Spain what, what, what was hopscotch into Spain what was your experience there so subhanallah <laughs> subhanallah um that was you know, it was it was just an amazing experience in the sense that I was on the ground touching the soil that so many Muslim scholars um, and scientists and leaders um, had been in and had left legacies. Um, and so it was just amazing to, you know, be able to go see the Alhambra and see the intricate architecture and art and design and you know it's just it's 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 almost indescribable um just seeing how long and how precise these artisans um like spent um on not only just decorating a wall but the entire palace um and being able to go to the mesquita um in cordoba 
and yes. you know going to just 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 so many places and such a rich history so it was amazing um you know it wasn't and i definitely tried to you know going in i was hesitant um because i was like i'm really about to choose a study abroad program in europe like this goes against you know everything <laughs> that you know i'm for and everything that i've been studying but i'm really i'm glad that i did it and i chose it specifically because of the area andalusia uh, because yes. that was Al Andalus, the Islamic Empire. Um, yes. And I'm so glad that I did because it's one thing to learn about that history from a textbook, but it's another thing entirely to see it. Um, and I think that it just really made me aware of how privileged I am to travel. And I was so fortunate that through scholarships I was able to achieve this, um, but also how necessary that is. Um, for every Muslim, but every, um, I would say every person of color in general to understand um, their history. And as a Muslim, it was definitely, it was just, it was just surreal. Um, it was surreal. Um, however, it wasn't all, it wasn't all great. Um, obviously, I was a visibly Muslim woman in Europe. Um, so I faced some ostracization. There wasn't any um overt islamophobia or racism yes. but yes. you know there was definitely and something that really surprised me was that there's not a large muslim population in cordoba um mm -hmm. and the muslim population that is there is very i would say kept under wraps and hidden um and one thing that um i want to speak on is that i personally feel and in discussions with um academics from Spain that the Inquisition is still alive and well in Spain. Yes. Um, yes. And it's like you can sure you can walk around and see women in hijab, but the two sectors of population do not um like they don't socialize a lot. Um and you know they're still like you can't even pray like in the um in the grand mosque. Like you're not even allowed to pray. The Christians can come over and have Sunday mass um, in the little middle part that they built when they destroyed the mosque, but Muslims can't pray. Um, and it's like, okay, but this is the mosque. Um, and if you walk like two blocks over, there's this tiny little like room that's hidden in an alleyway. And that's like the only mosque where Muslims can pray in relation. And mind you, like the Grand Mosque of Cordoba is huge. It is just, it's, it's huge. Um, and the art and everything, it's beautiful. Um, and to speak a little bit on the history of Andalusia, for those who don't know, um, it was um, a Moorish Muslim empire for many centuries. Um, and the... More than um, 800 years. Yep. And the <laughs> Catholic Inquisition, when they came, now when the Muslims came, um, they didn't do a lot of destruction. And you know, that speaks to the, path of islam and the way of the prophet you know we have to abide by certain things you know don't destroy trees um respect the peoples who are there so there wasn't a lot of destruction they built over um previous visigothic um churches and that sort um so there wasn't they didn't do a lot of destroying um and you can even see when you go to the grand mosque they have part of the floor removed and you can see the pillars that the um, mosque was built over in order to preserve the previous um, church. And so 
you go in and basically so when the inquisition came in they did a lot of destruction um, mm-hmm. They destroyed a lot. They totaled um, um, and completely um, just pummeled mosques to the ground. And in this particular mosque, the one in Cordoba, um, they they took down the minaret, which is the tower that we use to call for prayer. Um, and they implement, they put up a church bell. And then they came in and in almost like it's the most petty thing that I can think of because I'm like, what? It just does. It doesn't make sense architecturally. It doesn't make sense logistically. Um, but they built this cathedral in the middle of the mosque. And when you go in, it's just, and I mean, and I'm not, I'm not saying this just because I'm a Muslim. Like uh, there were other tour guides who were like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Um, (laughs) they, they built this huge cathedral in the middle with all this, you know, um, idols and characters of human beings. And it's just so it is so in contrast to the anachronistic Islamic architecture um, with floral designs and focused on the earth and sunlight and all that sort of thing. And it's just such a stark contrast that it, 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 it doesn't, it almost hurts the eyes. Um, And again, I'm not just saying this as a Muslim, you know, obviously, you know, I was a little, when I walked in there, I was a little upset. I was like, really? Um, but even again, like this is like other Spaniards will comment on this and they'll be like, yeah, the architecture just doesn't match up. It just doesn't. Um, and they did other things as well. They, um, the, um, there were, there were huge windows that were created in order to play off some of the art um, and the colors that were in the mosque. Um, and they barred those windows. And so there's not even a lot of natural sunlight that's able to come in. And so that amongst other things um something that was really interesting that i found out and i was very fortunate to have a professor who gave us the history like it is and he told us straight up that you know they don't talk about the moorish history in spain like that is not taught to um students they keep it under wraps which doesn't make sense to me because i'm like there were so many accomplishments that occurred during that time why would you try to keep that history under wraps but I mean, it's the same thing here in the United States. They try to keep anything that can portray Muslims um, in a good light. They try to hide it. Um, so that history is just not like there's no mention of it. Um, and, and that's un- and and that's unfortunate. That was that was one of the elements I was talking about with respect to the indictment, if you will, K through twelve education. You know mm-hmm. how uh, some you know some of that very some of that seemingly seemingly imperative information you know that would lend much to the reinforcement you know of confidence and things of that sort you know is is conspicuously absent Mm -hmm. it reminds me you know it reminds me of um at the end of his book stanley lane pool at the end of his book the moorish empire in spain you know where he's talking about you know and you 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 talked to you had mentioned the spanish inquisition Mm -hmm. 1492 when the when in that year they eliminated the last of the Muslims, and he closes out his book and says it as it is as if Spain had killed its golden goose mm. because subsequent because subsequent to that we know that Spain with respect to uh, religion Spain with respect to um, knowledge uh, instead of maintaining its apex direction that Islam had brought it it suffered a more deleterious impact and went south. And you know what, subhanAllah, I was able to visit the exact room where Columbus signed 
the treaty with um, Queen Isabella and Prince Ferdinand. And you will never guess that room is located in the Alhambra Palace. And it is the room where the last caliph was, um, where he was overtaken. And so the fact that, you know, those histories are collided, I think it just goes to speak that Spain went from this golden age, as you so speak of, um, yeah. to just centuries of destruction and murder um, and bloodshed over here in the Americas. And it was just, it's just so surreal. It's just, subhanAllah. It's very surreal. It's very surreal. You know, I opened, I opened this preface, I opened this piece up with a prefatory note and I was, and I, and I talked about a problem and I was talking about that notion of double consciousness that, mm. that Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois had reminded us of, you know, in his, uh, his book, Souls of Black Folk, when he was asked many times over and he had to try to wrestle with how, how do I answer this? You know, because some of his colleagues, white colleagues had asked him, you know, what is it like to be a problem? Mm. And he de- he developed that into the theory of double consciousness. Mm. At the moment, you know, at the moment that people like you and I have been othered, you know, or and not n- negatively othered, where we accept that, but when we step over our threshold, you know, of our houses and we're going into common America, um, right. we're looking through t- we're looking through two lens. So, just to bring this episode to a close, how have you? How have you dealt with notions of double consciousness or have you? And also because much of ethnic discourses is given back. We have to, we have to think in terms of what other people are experiencing like ourselves. So if you have, what advice would you give to somebody who may be on the same trajectory as you, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, uh, religion under, you know, under undermining, uh, not undermining, under, you know, undergirding your direction, what advice would you give if you have been mm. afflicted with a sense of double consciousness and what drives you to harness that mm. and challenge it? I think that that sense of double consciousness has offered me an awareness of all the ugliness and all the beauty in the world because I see things for what they truly are and I see all of it. Um, and it has really just made me, I can't see things from a one, from one dimension, um, from a one dimensional viewpoint. Um, and so navigating life, and I think that this ties back into Islam in the sense that you're, you're navigating life always with this understanding that it's going to end and that your sole purpose for being on this earth is to serve God. Um, mm-hmm. And so understanding that and relating that back to the double conscious to the um, perspective of double consciousness it's navigating life seeing all the struggle um, and seeing all the ugliness and being reminded that you know your purpose is to fight back against that and that you're not living for this life Um, and I really just I've had that perspective and it may seem kind of um, morose but I've had that perspective since I was a young girl Um, Just, you know, realizing that this life is going to be hard and it's going to be ugly, um, but I'm not living for this life. Um, And if that means going through a lifetime of hardship for the sake of entering the gates of paradise, then, you know, so be it. I will I will go through that. Um, And I think that for anybody and something that I've had to grow to understand um, and for anybody else who is going through a similar path is that sense of awareness is a strength 
and don't let anyone tell you otherwise um, because you see things from multiple perspectives and you see things for what they truly are. Um, and I think that especially in pursuing a career in the legal field, you can't just look at law for the words that are on the paper because those words were written by white men. Um, Mm -hmm. You have to have a greater understanding of what that means and relate that back to your experiences, relate that back to other interpretations of law, be that Sharia or, you know, um, legal systems um, from previous African civilizations and just have a greater understanding and not be afraid to challenge the status quo. I think that's key Um, because when you have a double consciousness, you have an awareness of an understanding of how things can be um, in another sense. And so not being afraid to challenge the way that things are now, especially when it comes to aspects of inequity and inequality, um, I believe that that's key. And so just always viewing that as a strength, because it is, um, and allowing that to be a motivation um, as you continue in your path forward. Alhamdulillah. Thank you very much, Kalima Mutaki, for being a guest on Ethnic Discourses. I mean, the conversation that you and... The conversation that you and I had was was very robust, and I'm hoping that you know our listeners can get much out of it. You you introduced the term at the last, talked about Sharia, and even though some individuals like to be spooked by that, we have to remember we have to remember that you know one of our founding fathers, the founding father of the United States of America, he had a Quran in right. his library. Here I'm talking about Thomas Jefferson, you know. So we have to get out of this silly notion of uh, we have to look back to Islam as being a beacon of light, you know, as mm-hmm. opposed to being buried under, you know, buried under a, a, a bushel, you know, and hidden or whatnot. So, Klima Mutaki, thank you very much for being a guest on Ethnic Discourses. Um, I wish you all the best of luck. May Allah subhanahu wa you know, bless you and you and all of your endeavors. And uh, I'm a very proud mentor. Thank <laughs> you so mentor. much. Very, very proud mentor. <laughs> so, Thank you for this episode, and that's what I'm talking about. Thank you much. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Ethnic Discourses. At this time, I want to give a shout out to my musicologist, who's provided the theme song for my show, Randy Ram. Also, I want to give a shout out to Candle Wonders for providing the muted yet ambient glow in my studio. New episodes are to appear every other Wednesday. If you like my show, please subscribe and sharing is caring. Tell somebody else.